This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang. And I will be your host for this episode. As a disclaimer, this may be the longest introduction that I will ever make for a podcast episode. If you want to skip the introduction, I will leave a timestamp for you. However, I strongly recommend that you stay for the introduction because to fully understand my guest's achievements and outstanding career, you must understand the context. So close your eyes. Imagine this. You are in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. You enter the Maracana Stadium. You walk up to the blocks, and you see that the track is no ordinary track. The track bears five interlocking rings. You warm up in front of thousands of in-person spectators and millions of broadcast spectators around the world. To your left, are you Usain Bolt? and Andre de Grasse. The official says, on your mark, you set yourself up at the blocks. But Gatlin, they're away. Gatlin gets a great start. Bolt's got work to do. Gatlin has the lead. Bolt's got to pour it on. Here he comes. He's caught Gatlin and wins. Goal. The grass is close. 980. Open your eyes. As you can probably tell, this is the 100-meter final at the Rio 2016 Olympic Games. We all know the special status and prestige of the Olympics and Paralympics. But what if I told you that there is a musical equivalent to the Olympics and Paralympics? What if I told you that there is a classical piano equivalent to the Olympics and Paralympics? What if I told you that there is an international piano competition that is so prestigious that even qualifying for it will immediately boost your career to new heights? Close your eyes again. Imagine this. You are in Warsaw, Poland. You are backstage at the National Philharmonic, a concert hall, with over a hundred years of rich history. But this time, there is no other competitor beside you. Instead of sportswear, you wear white tie, the most formal dress attire in the entire Western world, more formal than a tuxedo. There are a crowd of cameras facing you backstage as the onstage Master of Ceremonies introduces your name and musical program. The Master of Ceremonies finishes the introduction. You walk up the stairs to the stage. You arise to a warm applause of over a thousand in-person spectators and millions of broadcast spectators on Polish national television and international television. You walk up to the piano and you realize that this piano is no ordinary piano. It is a nine feet long Steinway Model D concert grand piano handcrafted in Hamburg, Germany, one of the best pianos in the world. As you bow to the audience, you see the world's greatest pianist of all time, 
seated in the balcony, including the great Martha Argerich and Dang Tai Son. These immortalized pianists, among at least ten others, will judge your performance. On top of all of this, you are the first Canadian to represent Canada at this competition, the international Chopin competition. The applause ends. You sit down. You meditate. The lights dim, and only the concert hall's spotlights focus on you. Dead silence in the audience. You place your hands on the ivory keys. You play. Open your eyes. You think I'm making this up? Think again. That was the majestic, heroic conclusion to Frederic François Chopin's Grande Polonaise Brillante, performed at the 2010 International Chopin Competition, by my guest, Leonard Gilbert. Leonard is a tax lawyer at Thorstensen's LLP, but he is more commonly known as one of Canada's pioneering classical virtuoso pianists of the 21st century. Leonard began learning piano at six years of age. And at nine years of age, he won his first Canadian music competition, the CMC, and he would win the CMC a total of four times. To put this into perspective, this is the musical equivalent of winning the NFL's Super Bowl or the NHL's Stanley Cup four times. He is also the winner of the 2010 Canadian Chopin Competition, and in that same competition, he was awarded the Best Mazurka and Best Polonaise Performances. To put this into perspective, this is the musical equivalent of winning a championship event at the Olympic and Paralympic trials, and then winning an MVP award for your team. At 19 years of age, Leonard was the first Canadian to represent Canada at the 2010 International Chopin Competition, viewed by most pianists to be one of, if not the most, prestigious piano competitions in the world, equivalent to the Olympics and Paralympics. Later on, 
Leonard would complete a Juris Doctor at the University of Toronto, and he's currently called to the Ontario Bar. A Canadian virtuoso and a legendary musician, Leonard Gilbert is my guest today. Leonard, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's start from the beginning. Well, before we go to your piano career, this is a question that I normally ask all of my guests on the show. What inspired you to go to law school? Yeah, I mean, uh, I always wanted to do law. Um, strangely enough, music was not always the first option for me. Um, but more so, it was uh, out of my personal life experiences. Um, my parents were actually divorced when I was younger, and um, we... It was it was somewhat acrimonious, <laughs> um, but at the same time, uh, my, my mom's family lawyer uh, had a big impact on me because I felt um, you know he he did a really good job for us and and um, also looked out not only for my mom's interests but for for myself as well. And he specializes in um, um, how family law impacts children. Um, and and out of that, uh, you know, I, I felt that the law could have a really meaningful impact on people. Um, and, and that's what I think spurred my inspiration um, initially to, to, to go into law and, and, and go to law school. Uh, that being said, I, I, I ran into that lawyer because he was a uh, guest lecturer at um, University of Toronto, and uh, he told me never to do family law after. <laughs> um, and I can see why. It's a difficult area to practice, but you know, if, if you are able to achieve good results, then, then it does have a a life-lasting uh, impact on, on the client. So. And speaking about good results, I mean, just based off of the introduction, again, for those of you who actually went through the introduction, this is the longest introduction so far that I've ever made for, for any guest because, again, I wanted to emphasize the, the importance of just how, how significant Leonard's achievements have been in his time as a classical pianist. And all of that has a beginning as well. So, Take us back to your first CMC experience. What was it like back then? Um, <laughs> first of all, I want to say I'm, I'm very flattered by, by the introduction that you've given me. Um, the, the first CMC experience I had, I, I was, I think, nine years old. Um, and, and at the time, I was probably too young to, to really appreciate um, the pressure and everything that goes into performing. Um, you know, it was more of, uh, going along for the ride and, and sort of just enjoying it. And, and CMC was is held in, um, the national finals are held in, in different provinces every year. So there's three levels to it. Um, there's the, the local level, basically, which is the first round. Um, assuming you get enough marks, you pass to the provincial level, which is the second round. And same thing, assuming you get enough marks, you get to the, the national level. Um, and then at the national level, you're, you're competing against, um, in your age group, everybody else, um, who's, who's gotten to that level. Um, so I think at the time for me, it was more like, Oh, I get to go travel to, I don't remember where it was. I think it was Edmonton maybe, um, but out of the province. Um, and I got to play piano. It sounds like a, you know, it seems like a fun experience and, and that's all it was um, at the time. Um, fortunately, you know, I did one win, so that made the experience a lot more better, <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly look back on it with uh, fond memories. That's great. Yeah, my uh, my first and only CMC experience was 2012. Uh, I was 16 at the time. Uh, they held the national final in Toronto. It was at Walter Hall that year. 
I made it to the provincial finals that year. Didn't get to the national finals, sadly. But I mean, I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's a great experience because for those of you who are not familiar with the CMC, you're not winning the CMC by playing hot cross buns. You're not, play, you're not winning the CMC by playing Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know, this is, the CMC really is, it's for those who really want to take their piano career to the next level. And there's so, in, in Canada, there's been so many pianists that have, been, that have come out with amazing careers. I mean, one, one pianist that comes to mind is Marc-Andre Hamelin, who was, who was essentially an alumnus of the CMC. And even, not even talking about the top level here, the CMC, there, it's a different level of competition as well. And at the same time, you also meet a lot of different people with different interpretations of, uh, of pianistic performance. And you having, having won four of these CMCs, I think you would have seen so many of these different styles coming out there as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a great experience because, you know, often, especially as pianists, we're, we're so uh, almost self-centered in a way, you know, we, we practice by ourselves, we perform by ourselves, um, you know, everything is focused um, on you individually. And, you know, when, when you get to go to this competition where you see people from all over the country, um, suddenly that horizon broadens a bit. Um, and I think it's, it's good not only because it gives you some new inspirations maybe as to how to interpret things, but also kind of just, you know, broadens your, your view of, of what's possible. Certainly. And the practice that we put into it is also something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand, especially for a competition year. So when you were competing, what was your typical practice schedule like? What was a day in the life of Leonard Gilbert? Um, for CMC or for, for other competitions? I guess for, for each one. Yeah, okay. Well, for CMC, I mean, I'll be honest, when I was younger, I was, I was not the most disciplined, um, you know, youngster. Uh, you know, you often hear stories about people practicing like five, six hours a day or something when they're three years old and like, okay, sure. Um, that was, that was not me. <laughs> um, but I think as I got older, um, my, my interest in music um, was more. And, and because of that, you know, practice at some point, I, I can't really pinpoint exactly where, but at some point, practice became much less of a chore and something more that I, that I, that I enjoyed. Um, so with that in mind, um, I did put in a lot of time, um, but it wasn't like, you know, I was being changed down, chained down to the piano <laughs> and told to practice six hours until I could you know, eat or something. Right. So um, I would say, you know, when I was younger, maybe uh, two or three hours um, at most um, three hours being maybe like I don't know, the week up to, up to, you know, crunch time. Right. And uh, as I got older, as I was preparing for the Chopin competition, then, you know, those hours did increase quite a bit. Um, so five, six, seven, sometimes eight hours um, every day. Um, and, you know, you have, to, you have to really enjoy it, I think. And you, you have to have the drive to want to wanna perfect um, what you're doing, knowing also that you can't achieve perfection because it, it just doesn't exist, right? It's like this goal that's, that's just unreachable always unreachable. Um, and even now, you know, looking back, um, I listen to my own performances and, and think, Oh, wow. You know, there's so many things I could have, I could have done better. You know, I have the benefit of hindsight now. Um, but 
certainly. And that's what makes it interesting too, because like you can always, you can always find new things, new interpretations, um, new ways of conceptualizing a piece. Um, so it never gets boring in that respect. Yeah, I, I completely relate to that. That, that. That's what happens to me even now looking back at my own uh, performances. Of course, nowhere close to your, to your level and nowhere close to, to the amount of, uh, of attention and, uh, and, and popularity that, that you reach. But yeah, I, I, see, I see so much in my younger performances where I can just think, wow, I, frankly, I thought some of my performances were bad. I mean, I was just like, no, oh, this, yeah, there's no way I'm doing it that way now. I mean, I, I would not approach it step A, I would approach it step B. And the practicing part, I can also relate to as, as well. Although I will say for, for, the, for the majority of my life and the majority of my piano career, my mom was my piano teacher. So there's no way I'm escaping any practice times at all. It's, it, for me, it was seven <laughs> days a week practicing. So, <laughs> so, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I greatly appreciate my, my mom for, for really pushing me and my, my dad as well. You know, my parents really pushing me to be the best that I could possibly be. And it's this level of discipline that I think a lot of athletes in our audience would also relate to because for them, it's a, especially for the university sports athletes for at least because I know this because I, I work in that in the U sports Canada leagues, they, they regularly train Monday to Friday, probably even Monday to Saturday from, for some of them four hours, five hours a day while they're balancing the university classes. So it's balancing school and balancing your pursuit, your, your athletic or musical pursuit in this, in this world. And that's a challenge that I think a lot of musicians and also a lot of athletes too, face on a regular basis especially when they're competing if they're preparing for a competition because there's only so many hours in the day and there's only so many things you can do in a single day and i think that was a huge challenge but it, from your career i think you really mastered that challenge and you knew how to address that in your daily life back then yeah i mean at a certain point you just gotta you gotta learn how to prioritize um things right so um I mean, I ended up still doing well, I think, in, in most of my classes while I was in Indiana and throughout high school as well. But, um, you know, I, I sacrificed certain things, right? So when, when I was in high school, for example, I'd, I'd get to school early and I'd practice um, before class. Uh, my lunchtime, most of the time, was, was spent practicing as well. Um, I was fortunate in that I went to a, a school that had practice rooms um, as an art school at Earl Haig um, through the Claude Watson program. Um, and same thing, you know, when I got to university, like, um, I, I just tried to, to find every opportunity I could to, one, perform and then also practice. Um, and sometimes that meant, you know, giving up a little bit on, on some of the classwork, but, you know, you have to do it within, within reason um, and still try to get the goals that you, get, that you want, right? So if, if you're able to manage out and plan out what you want to do, then I think it's possible. It certainly is. And I think it's also a similar experience for lawyers as well. And now that you're a, a lawyer, it's all about prioritizing that time. Legal practice, as you know, is really, really busy. And that prioritization, that time management is such an important thing throughout your legal practice and also in law school even. And I think every law student can relate to that, that importance of having that skill on hand. Going back to your piano career, when you were still competing, what inspired you to compete in the third Canadian Chopin competition? Um, going to the international competition. So, I mean, I, I viewed it more as like a stepping stone, right? You know, if, if, um, if I didn't do well at the, the third Canadian Chopin competition, I probably wasn't going to do so well at the international one. Um, I think at the time, and I, I don't 
remember exactly, but, you know, part of the first prize or the first, I think, first, second and third prizes was that um, the, the Canadian competition would cover your airfare to go to, to go to um, Warsaw for the preliminary round. Um, now, I think, I think, and I'm not sure, but um, if you place first, second and third, I think you're able to skip the preliminaries and go directly to the first round. Um, they do that, I think, with the uh, United States Chopin competition as well. Um, but there are certain incentives there to sort of, you know, try to allow the Canadian and U.S. winners to make sure that they have a spot um, in the international competition going forward. So if you didn't make it in, let's say in, your, let's say in an alternate universe, you didn't make it to the international Chopin competition. Is that it? Is that, do you have a second chance to get in or is that the end of your international Chopin competition dreams? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you can try again five years later. Um, it's every five years. Um, I've, I've seen people go to three editions. So over a 10 year span, basically, wow. right. Um, almost invariably they, they do worse each time they go in. <laughs> um, I, I think there's like a, I don't know, after going in the first time, there's like an expectation that perhaps, you know, you've matured more the second time and, uh, your playing has gotten that much better um, versus you know somebody who's coming in completely fresh uh, but there have been some instances where you know people have gone in uh, didn't do well uh, come back and like you know really improve themselves and, and, and place uh, as a prize winner um, also the reverse of you know there's if you look back at the history somebody who's actually gone all the way through to the finals the first time they went the second time I think they only made it to like the, the quarterfinals or the semifinals I remember and then the third time they didn't even make it past the preliminary um, so it goes both ways. <laughs> wow. That, that's really interesting. That's that I never knew that at all because I was always under the, uh, the impression that when I was, when I was a kid, that if you didn't make it into the international strumpet competition at all, that's it. Like you can't make it in like you're, you're banned from it somehow. And, uh, <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's a, there's a gray band, let's say, right. You know, uh, if, you've, if you've gone in and you didn't make it, you know, you go again, uh, chances are you're not going to make it. Um, cause your name's been there, you know, there's an expectation that as to already or like what standard or level that you set for yourself. Right. So, and especially in classical music and, you know, it's, it's uh, and now with YouTube and everything where things are recorded, even the preliminary rounds, I think now are available um, online. Right. And, and that's part of the pressure. Like if you go in there and you, you mess up really badly, like that's, that's there forever. Um, and it's, it's different from, I, I would say a little bit different from sports in the sense that, you know, maybe you didn't run, hundred meters in eight seconds or whatever it is this time. Um, but that doesn't reflect on you badly as an athlete. It just means, you know, you didn't, maybe you didn't run your best that day in music. If you have a memory slip and totally break down, like that's, that's there forever. And everybody's going to remember, um, that you had that <laughs> performance experience. That was, that was, that was bad. Um, yeah. so it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. There was actually one performance out of respect, I won't mention, I, first of all, I forgot the name of the, uh, the pianist. So it wouldn't really matter. But even then, you know, out of respect for the pianist, this was back probably in the 80s or 90s where they tried to start the piece, but they couldn't start the piece. And then eventually the judge said, okay, you're done. And that was in front of, of like a whole 
live audience. Oh man, that was that was rough. Just watching that rough. I, I think I know specifically the video you're you're referring to, and it's a Tchaikovsky competition a couple of years ago. I don't even think the video is still online, but uh, I recall the the contestant was trying to start the the double thirds etude um, by Chopin. Yeah, um, and they just they, they just couldn't get it going, and, yeah. and eventually one of the judges, I think, just took a spoon and started. Um, hitting the glass just to, let the them one, know, yeah. like, to stop and then you know yeah. thank you and then sort of bowed and, and went off stage but um it, it's it's really tough i think you know to have that follow you for yeah. the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs> and oddly enough actually at there was this was actually quite recently too at also i think it was the tchaikovsky competition this is actually the other extreme where a pianist had amazing mental fortitude because they were beginning, I think, a different program, but then they ended up playing the Rachmaninoff's variations on the theme of Paganini. And you just saw the pianist, you're just like looking at the conductor going like, wait, what? But he yeah. immediately, he, he actually entered late too. So it was like, but he, 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 he quickly moved in and he quickly performed the whole piece quite well, amazingly. And wow, it was a huge controversy back then because people were saying... The announcer was, it was apparently, and this is more of a rumor, but apparently the announcer was fired because he messed up the, the, the program completely. But there was a whole... He mixed logistic. up the order. Yeah. 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 And, oh man, it was, it was rough. They, they offered him to, to compete, uh, uh, to, to perform a second time. So it's like, no, I can't do it. Like, you screwed it up, you know? And, you know, I won't have an, I won't have an opinion on this, but I'm just like, I, I can only imagine that, oh my goodness, right in front of, this is the biggest moment of your life. Imagine being at the Olympics and then all of a sudden you're being told that you're, you're competing at the wrong finals, at the wrong event. Wait, yeah. you put all that mental fortitude, to put all that mental preparation in and you're telling me I'm not supposed to belong there? Ooh, that's, that is rough. I mean... I mean, kudos to him, though. Kudos to, 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 to that pianist for being able to pull through. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. And the, uh, speaking about competing pianists, when you moved around from the CMC to the Canadian Chopin competition, what did you find were the differences and similarities between the two different competitions? Um, well, I mean, CMC is not focused only on one composer, right? So um, the three rounds have you played... Um, different pieces by different composers so there's like a I think there's like a, a requirement that you play a Bach prelude and fugue for example in your first round in some sort of a study um, and then the second round you have to play some some uh, movement or something of a sonata maybe or maybe the whole sonata and then like a work of your choice um, and then the final round is a concerto um, kind of similar in the Canadian Chopin competition except everything's Chopin right so um, you got to play a Chopin study, of which there's 25 um, to choose from. A couple more if you include the the um, new three new etudes, whatever they're called. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, there's a there's a second round which you must play one of the sonatas. Um, so again, kind of similar, but you know you're you're limited to the two Chopin sonatas and not you know, the millions of, not millions, but hundreds of other sonatas that you can choose from in the classical genre. Um, and then in the final round, you play one of Chopin's uh, two concertos. Um, but the difference is that it's, it's focused solely um, on Chopin's works. Um, and by having it over three rounds, the idea is that it, it gives the, uh, the jury uh, some better insight into your ability to interpret Chopin, not, not only specifically you know, one piece, but able to, to interpret many different styles of, 
of the works that Chopin wrote. So, you know, within um, the piano repertoire of Chopin, it, you know, you can't just call it like piano pieces, right? So it's actually a, quite a bit more specific than that. So you have the studies, for example, which focus on a particular technical problem. You have the mazurkas, which are based on, on folk dances in a sense. And you have the waltzes, which are the more common waltz dance, obviously. Um, you have the ballads, which are supposed to be telling stories. You have the scherzos, which are supposed to be more kind of playful works. Um, then you have the sonatas, which are more, more serious, um, longer pieces, which go back to the, the sonata form, which was a big part of the, the classical period. When I say classical, I don't refer to classical generally. I mean classical in the you know, 17th, 18th century. Um, and then you get to the, you get the concerto, which is, you know, the, the largest work of all. Yeah. And one of the things that I realized from, from this is more of an aside for me, when I realize when I look at a composer, oftentimes a good primer, and this is just from my own experience, a good primer into whoever that composer is, is by looking at their sonatas, like Chopin sonatas or Liszt sonatas or Mozart sonatas Prokofiev sonatas, and you see a lot of their personality bleed through into the sonatas as well when when they compose and when you when you perform perform the piece. And I, I remember uh, hearing from from uh, for, from a couple of music colleagues that performing a piece of anyone, whether it be Chopin or Liszt or whoever, you have to perform as if, or not have to, but it's best to perform as if you were performing their life story in a way. So like Chopin, as, as, as you know, he, he lived a life of tragedy. I mean, he had tuberculosis for most of his life and he tragically died in his 30s because tuberculosis was a death sentence back then. Unlike now, we have antibiotics to treat it and, and cure it. But back then, you got it, you're dead in a, in a couple of years. It was a death sentence. So you can kind of hear that a bit of that sorrow in his pieces, even those that are majestic, even those that are, that are or give a majestic... Uh, feel or a so-called joyful or or gleeful feel and it's really interesting whereas you contrast that with list list is a person who was essentially as mentioned by quite a few experts in the area he was treated almost like the, the beatles of his era of his era essentially almost like a rock star so his music was extremely just out there it was so virtual so virtuosic and so technically challenging in terms of technique that you know a lot of pianists still say they make memes off of this thing list is perhaps the bane of my existence and all that all that kind of stuff i mean i don't know i don't think i, I, I agree with that as long as you practice you can play list of course but but yeah it's it's going back after this huge ramble that i've just gone off of the sonatas are really something that you can just see a good image a good portion of the image of what you see in the composer is in that sonata and from your experience at the international chopin competition i mean i think you really at least from me watching it and wow like you really you really showcased a lot of that emotional a lot of that a lot of his life story through his pieces in the two rounds that you were involved in yeah thanks um i mean it it, it is you know a lot of it is historical in a sense that we are interpreting um pieces written 200 years ago, um, sometimes, or more. Um, and to a certain extent, you know, we, we got to find that balance, I think, um, as modern day pianists, uh, to both 
be faithful to the score um, in terms of interpreting what the composer may have intended, but also um, putting a bit of ourselves um, into the piece so that that interpretation becomes unique um, to ourselves. Yes, um, yes, yes. And, and on top of all this, um, which I also find quite interesting, is that you know, we, we play on a, a modern day piano now, which is very, very different from the instruments uh, that these composers initially uh, made their pieces for, right? So, you know, in Chopin's time, if you've ever played on a period instrument or if you ever get a chance to, you'll, you'll find that um, it, it's not nearly as powerful as, as the pianos that we have today. The, the pedals don't sustain quite as much. Um, the keys are a little bit thinner and the sound is just nowhere near as robust as, as what we're able to to achieve now. And um, there's always this struggle because you'll have people who, who come in and interpret and provide a very, uh, let's say, you know, unique interpretation that doesn't follow the score in any way whatsoever. Um, and then you'll have somebody else who maybe plays, you know, very by the score and uh, the interpretation doesn't seem as interesting. Um, and, you know, you're left with sort of this conundrum as to, well, what's, what's the more correct way to go about it, right? Like, do we accept that we're on a modern day instrument and we can really just use the score as a, uh, a loose foundational groundwork um, framework for, for performance or, or, or do we have to look at the score and try to find every detail and, um, and, and be religious almost in, in terms of, of how close we are to, to what we think the composer intended, even though at the same time we acknowledge we're not even playing on the same instrument that these pieces were composed for. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the different pianos as well because recently, this was sometime during the pandemic, probably a little bit earlier, but it's recent regardless. They were there was one pianist, a British pianist, who was who were performing Chopin's pieces on his own piano, on Chopin's very own piano. I think it was a Pleyel or an Arard, and yeah, it's so different. It's so different. Well, first of all, the construction is very different. I mean, not just the exterior, but the interior as well. And second of all. The, the color, the tone, and even the action is just slightly different. It's just not slightly, quite different, substantially different from your modern concert grands or even your baby grands even nowadays. The sound is very different. It's not as bright. It's a lot more mellow from what I found at least. And it's, it's like you said, it's really interesting because it contrasts between how we would interpret it and how someone back in the 1800s would have interpreted it, or even somebody in the 1900s, the early 1900s would have interpreted the same piece because of not just their own personal interpretations, but also the different pianos involved there as as well. And now... Yeah, I mean, not, not to go down a rabbit hole, but um, one, one thing that I think is really interesting that's worth, worth looking into, you know, if you have time or if the listeners have time, is um, uh, even tuning of the instrument affects um, performance quite a bit and one of my one of the papers I wrote when I was still in Indiana for my early music studies was was tuning of, of harpsichords and um, how that affected uh, performance at the time because you know when we tune a piano now we can't tune it perfectly um, just scientifically because of how it works so actually to tune a piano you you make it out of tune but just ever so slightly out of tune so that overall the effect is that it sounds like it's in tune um, but you know, if you know your intervals, like your perfect thirds and fifths and, and octaves and, and fourths, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you were to tune it perfectly, uh, by the time you you start from middle C to, to G, for example, and then you go all the way up to the top of the piano and play those the C and G again, it will sound completely out of whack. If you do 
try to do it perfectly. So what we have is tempered tuning, which which changes, um, which essentially puts it out of tune so that the entire piano is tempered. Now, back in box time, for example, they, they may have tuned um, a harpsichord specifically for a certain type of key. So you have intervals that sound actually truly perfect um, in C major, for example. Um, and because of that, the dissonance, so for example, if you go to like C to F sharp, so you have an augmented chord, that dissonance will sound a lot more dissonant than what we're used to because our, our tuning is tempered. Um, whereas on a harpsichord that's been tuned specifically for C major, everything sounds great until you have that one dissonance chord and it really, really sticks out. Um, and I think that's interesting because now when we play, you know, we're so used to this tempered sound that everything kind of mellows together. We're not quite as aware of those dissonances sometimes in the score, and they might not stick out quite as quite as much. Um, but for somebody who plays on an instrument that's been tuned specifically for that key, for that piece, um, suddenly it sounds completely different to what you'd expect. Yeah, and that dissonance is especially apparent. And, and this was something that I've always wondered. Why is it that the tritone was treated as the devil's chord back then? Because when I play it now, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's not a perfect fourth. It's not a perfect fifth. It's just in between. It, it sounds, it can, I understand it can sound a bit off, to, uh, off, quote unquote. But I mean, the devil's chord, really? I mean, but now that you mentioned the, the different tuning types and the different tuning techniques back then, now I can understand why, because if that distance is so apparent and we're missing a lot of that, then yeah, of course, it would be, it would be a huge factor as to why people think it's, it's, it's the devil being summoned every time you're playing a, a tritone, it's, especially back then in a very different society combined with that. But yeah, I mean, that's really, really interesting with the, with the different tuning, tuning uh, techniques and the different ways of, 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 of tuning. And on top of the tuning and and the construction of the piano, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Bach's period. J.S. Bach, his son C.P. Bach, wrote a really good book as well, the essay on the true art of, of playing keyboard instruments. I'm very sure you know you know of this uh, this book as well. There's a great co copy of this in English at the Carleton University Library for those of you who are interested in reading it. For him, what I realized then, and this is this is more of the classical era, not the Baroque era. He one of the things that I find that that's so true even nowadays is that he wrote that there has to be three things that exist in piano performance, correct fingering, good embellishments and good performance. And I think that still applies so well today because number one, even nowadays with teachers teaching, even at the beginner levels or the inter intermediate levels, they always teach important fingering. They, they teach you have to follow the fingering and you have to make sure uh, that you get it down because it trains you properly on how to, how to have good technique and also at the same time, how to use that technique to express yourself musically. And then embellishments, you can't have too much and you can't have too little. You have to have just right, the right amount of balance that again, reflects both you and the composer coming out and then good performance. Well, I mean, good performance is really just a matter of practice and also being able to combine your technique and your musicality together in a good balance. And for me, this is such an important fundamental that stands the test of time. Maybe the tuning systems have changed over the, over, over the centuries, but I think what hasn't changed is, are these three fundamentals in time. And I, I see this a lot, even especially in Chopin's music, because you see all three of this 
very, very well, especially when you're performing the poet of the piano's music. You've got to be able to be a good poetis- poeticist, if that's even a word. I mean, whatever. But I mean, you need to have these three fundamentals down in order to perform Chopin or anyone at, at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's always tough because uh, I think, especially with Chopin, you're given this idea that you have a lot of freedom. Um, and you do, um, but you got you to gotta do it within the confines of, I think, the, the piece, right? So one, one of the, um, the signature characteristics, let's say, of Chopin's uh, uh, pieces is rubato, like this, this term that you have, you know, kind of sense of rhythmic freedom, if you will. Um, but, you know, even if you do have that rhythmic freedom, if you take more time on beat one, uh, you got to speed up on beat two to catch up for it just to use a very, you know, simple example. And you can't do too much of it, right? Um, if you do, then I remember one of my old teachers used to have the expression saying that you're, you're trying to smell every, every rose um, in the garden. And, and because of that, you, you've lost sight of the garden itself. Um, and it's very annoying also for the listener, I think, when, when you hear somebody who does that because they've become so self-indulgent in, in their own performance that it's only enjoyable for the performer and not the listener. Uh, so to find that balance uh, is, is tough, but it's one of those things that I think you know, pianists always uh, will struggle with. And if you're able to achieve that balance, then it's great because it's not only enjoyable for you, but also the listener can, can follow around as well and not just get stuck on, on every single you know, phrase. Yeah, I was also I was also told a similar similar thing about that as well about rubato. Um, I, I actually had when I was when I was younger, a lot younger, I had the issue of of putting too much rubato, and my mom would always tell me not too much. You got to tone it back down, you know, because you're otherwise you're way off time at this point. I'm like, oh oh boy, okay, I got to really tone it down a bit. And I, I had I had issues with that very very early on over a decade ago. But um, yeah, that's, that balance is so important and it takes time to master that. And you mastered that when you were at the, uh, the 16th international Chopin competition. So what was it like for you to get the call? And what was it like for you to realize that you were the first Canadian to represent Canada at the international Chopin competition? Um, well, I mean, looking back now, it, it seems significant, and it probably is. Um, I think at the time, I was just excited to be able to go. I, I wasn't really thinking of, um, you know, being the first Canadian or first this or that. Um, it was just, you know, it was, a, it was a goal of mine that I wanted to achieve, and um, sort of it, it represented a, um, a you know, realization of a, of a stepping stone and, and getting to, to where I wanted to go. Um, when, when I went to Indiana first for piano, I had approached my professor at the time and told him, you know, here are all the competitions I want to do. I gave him like a list of 15 or 20 or something. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> he told me I wasn't ready for any of them. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> all this sort of stuff. Anyways, uh, I, I, I made it to there and, and, you know, I, it gives you some confidence when you're able to, to achieve those goals. Um, it wasn't a call. I remember, I think it was like an email or something, but um, the, the whole process, the selection was quite rigorous. So uh, every like applications are open to everybody as long as you fit within the age group of 18 to 30, I think it is, or maybe 35. Um, and in the initial application, you send in a video recording of yourself. Uh, playing certain set defined pieces that they have everybody play. Uh, 
of that, they choose, so however many applied, don't know how many, it's probably thousands, um, they choose 300 people for the preliminary round, 360 for the preliminary round. And that preliminary round, um, you actually do go to Warsaw, um, and it's a live uh, audition. And from there, they cut that down to 80 for the actual, like the real competition. And then from there, it gets down to 80, 40, 20, 10, I think. Um, until they finally choose choose their winner, but it's a it's a grueling process, and I think you know if if you're able to get through it, then there's certainly some sense of achievement um, that you have. I mean, even getting there to the actual competition, that is, it's it's really a testament to to a pianist's skill musically and technically as well. I mean, I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. This is essentially the Olympics of the of music. Just simply qualifying for it, qualifying for the heats, is a huge, huge achievement. And you know, it, let alone to be able to progress that far into the competition and being the first Canadian to do so, it, it's it, it, it's really just a testament. It really is a testament to just what you're able to do with the piano and what you're able to do to to inspire a lot of Canadians afterwards in the next ten years after and even nowadays. To, to, to what they can do with the piano as, as well. When you first stepped on to that stage in the first official round of the competition, the international Chopin competition, take us back to that moment when you walked on a stage and the, the audience was applauding you and you were on national television, Polish national te- television at the time, and you saw that Steinway, you saw that Model D concert grand, what was it like? What was the feeling like? It's difficult to describe. It's a, it's a mix of many feelings. Um, and all of that just suddenly goes away, I think, when you sit down and you're about to play because you just got to focus, right? I think before getting on stage, you know, you definitely feel some, some fear. Um, there's definitely some anxiety and stress and, and pressure and, you know, every sort of bad emotion that you can possibly think of probably save anger. I don't know why you'd be angry. Um, but, uh, in addition to that, you know, there's also, um, a feeling of, you know, some hope or some, uh, uh, excitement, uh, in a good sense. Right. And when, when you sit down, um, you know, it's just you and the piano. Uh, you gotta, you just gotta block out everything else. Um, they're there, the pe- audience is there, right? Um, and you're performing for them. Um, but at that moment when you sit down, I think you know your mind just goes blank for a second, and you just you gotta focus on what you want to portray in the music, and you just gotta think about the music um, and not let other things distract you. I think for performers, it's very easy to worry about things that are really you know beyond your control. Um, something might happen, sure. Like I saw somebody when they walked on stage, they were maybe a little bit too excited and slipped and fell <laughs> and thankfully didn't hurt their hands and they're still able to perform. Uh, but, you know, things happen, right? Uh, but when you're there in front of the piano, it's just you and the piano. Um, very unlikely that a string is going to break or the piano is not going to work or anything like that. Um, so it's just it's just you. And you got to plan, I think, before you get get on stage and how you want to order your pieces and what you want to play. You know, when you're nervous, your, your blood circulation might not be so good. 
you might not want to start out with the fastest piece that's going to require the the most you know delicate and intricate finger work right um, and then you also want to think about how you finish your program do you want to finish it with a very slow piece that's going to leave the audience on a very somber you know mellow tone or do you want to try to finish with something that's that's more substantial that's going to try to spur them to get on their feet and, and applaud for you, right? Because a lot of that also factors in, not, you know, consciously, but to a certain extent, I think, to the, to the judges' reactions as well. You know, if they see the audience doesn't, doesn't like the competitor, um, they might like them, but at the same time, it's, it's difficult to sell that at the end of the day. Certainly, certainly, yeah. And that, it, it's, it's always amazing to, 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 to see these different competitions and really to see just the, the, the person behind the pianist, essentially, with all the emotions and everything like that. And I, I relate a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of that to that, but of course, nowhere close to the to level that, that, you, that you had to as you were stepping in front of the world at the time. And the competition that you faced back then, and really, it's no different from for, for every year, but... But back then, oh my goodness, that the competition was stacked that year. Daniil Trifonov was there, Ingel Wunder was there, Dasol Kim was there, Yuliana Adieva was there. These these were are all top name pianists there who were wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm like wow. How did you, how did you face up against these 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 amazing pianists? And then Martha Argerich, Dan Tyson were two of the, of of the jurors who were there in your year. That is, for those of you who, in the audience who aren't familiar with these people, imagine this. Imagine going up against Michael Phelps, Aaron Pearsall, Jason Lezak, Brent Hayden, and Ryan Cochran at the same time, all in the same Olympic final, where Mark Spitz, Olympic multi-medalist, the first American to hit nine gold, eight gold, uh, seven gold in one uh, Olympics. And imagine him being one of the officials on the Olympics. I mean, that's just how difficult that competition is and, and what you're up against. The stress, the nerves. And I know, I know you mentioned this, that it's just you and the piano, but at some point, the stress and nerves are just, I mean, how do you, how do you calm that down? How do you calm down all those nerves and make sure that you don't crack under the pressure? Uh, I think you just, you, you got to have confidence in yourself, right? So, you know, a lot of going, a lot of the preparation going to the competition is, it's much more important, I would say, than anything you do on the day of. I mean, you know, get a good night's sleep and eat and all that. But the preparation is, is key. So, you know, if, if you haven't performed before um, and you get on stage to perform a piece for the first time, things are they're not going to go the way you want them to go. Um, when you're completely relaxed and you have full control over everything you do, it's a lot easier to play and, and do the things you want to do. When, when you're suddenly put on the pedestal and people are focusing on you, you also become hyper-focused on yourself and every single thing that you do. And because of that, it makes it much easier to get distracted by everything that you, you didn't notice you were doing before. Um, so as part of the preparation, you, know, you just gotta, you gotta perform as much as possible. Uh, and that will give you more comfort when you get on stage to perform the same way that you usually do um, and not get distracted by these little things that may or may not happen. Uh, I remember when I was my first couple of years in Indiana, what I, what I did was uh, to arrange sort of a, 
a performance group between all the piano majors. And this is something that wasn't usually done because for whatever reason, piano majors are quite, uh, how do you say, uh, you know, they, they like separation and being, being to themselves and they don't like performing for other people, partly because when you perform, you also, you're, you're exposing yourself, right? Like you're, you're playing as, as, is is naked in a sense right people can hear and see everything you do they can see and listen to all the mistakes you made there's no hiding from it um especially from other people who who study the craft and and know what those issues are right for the general audience you might make a mistake they might know or might not so in any event um i arranged this as a means not only for myself but also for the other people to, to try to get to like a more collegial environment for for the pianists and so that we don't feel like we're competing against each other. And, and as part of that also that we can perform for each other and, and build up sort of that you know, performance tolerance of, of having an audience in, in front of you. Um, and it didn't last too long because um, people invariably just didn't want to perform, but we had a couple um, and, and it helped. Um, so in addition to that, you know, we had our studio classes where we'd perform for each other. And then I just try to find every other performance opportunity that I could. Um, you know, you, you see the final product when I'm when I was at the Chopin competition, um, and same thing, you know, with any other recorded performance. That's let's call it a final, not a final product, but close enough, right? The finished product at that time. What you don't hear is the thousands of hours of practice. You know, all the mistakes that you make, performances where you have screwed up and made mistakes, yes. they happen. Like nobody's nobody's perfect, right? Yes. Um, we, we tend to think, you know, especially for classical musicians, because, um, you know, they're filmed and then they're, they're put on this pedestal as being like this, you know, perfect athlete of, of the piano or, or yeah. whatever instrument yeah. that they play. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, they're, they're all human too. They've made the mistakes. Um, the only reason they've got to the place where they can play without the mistakes is because they made those mistakes before. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and it's happened for everybody. You just, you just don't hear it sometimes. But exactly. that's, that's the key so that, you know, when you get to these high pressure situations, you, you've established sort of a baseline for yourself of, of what you can do. And you're never going to fall below that baseline. You might not play your best, but yes. you know, and, and the more you perform, the, the higher quality or the higher the baseline gets to the point where, you know, you sound professional all the time, let's say, because you're comfortable enough in your performance that, you know, you know where things are, you know what to expect. Uh, you know the difficult passages and you've put in the work to to prepare and make sure that those those spots that might come up and, and screw you over when you're performing, that you don't let it happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is something that I also tell a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues about classical piano. They, they, I, what you mentioned, I, I hear a lot of them who say that, oh man, those classical pianists, you know, they're able to do all these amazing things. I'm just like, and and they ask me, how do they do it? They, they must have some secret talent. I'm like practice. It's practice. You know, you just, you just, you have to put in the hours. It's the same way how a lot of athletes, how are these Olympic athletes able to, to do all these amazing achievements, practice workouts, you know, putting in the reps and piano is no different to that. If anything, I would even say that there's even more hours put, put into to piano as well, because you ha you also have that musical element to where, where you have to immerse your soul into the soul of the music. So, yeah, you've got to practice. There, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts whatsoever. You've got to put in the work. You've got to put in the practice. You've got to put in the hours. You've got to put in the days too. And that is, it, it shows, you know, the, the, the practice, that what you see there, what Leonard said, 
that is after years and years and years and years of practice of ups and downs, highs and lows. There's no shortcut around it. And because you spent so much time with Chopin's pieces, who was or who is Frederick Chopin to you? Yeah, so that's a, a difficult, a very difficult question. Um, you know, I think as pianists, uh, the more time we spend with composers, uh, we're able to relate maybe better to their music um, because we understand it better. And also, as you grow older and you experience more in life, you're able to relate better to the music as well because sometimes certain things in music start speaking to you in a way that uh, it wouldn't have before. Um, that's, that's also partly why I'm, I'm, I'm very against, you know, chaining kids down and having them practice six hours a day because what could you possibly experience in your life um, that's going to allow you to be able to, to relate to the music when, when all you do is, when all you do is practice. Um, but back to the question, um, Chopin, um, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest composers and, and one who's almost basically solely, uh, you know, composed for the piano. And, um, there's, there's elements of, uh, you mentioned earlier, sorrow. That's one of them. Nostalgia is another big one. Um, but, you know, he, he experienced, I think, so much in his life. He went through a lot of those highs and lows, right? And, and probably, you know, three times worth the years that he had in his life. I think he was only 37, 38, maybe Something even like younger, that. right, when he died. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now. Uh, I, I can't say that I've experienced everything, all the pain and everything that he's gone through. But I think, you know, as I grow older and the more I play his music, um, I'm able to relate more to it. Um, and, and it becomes uh, a more intimate relationship with, with some of the works that I've had in my fingers uh, for a long time. Certainly, certainly. And you certainly, of course, as we've shown so far throughout this episode, you have been able to express all of that through the different pianos that you've been performing on for all of these different years. And I'm curious as to know, from your personal experiences, the differences between a baby grand piano, a regular grand piano, and a concert grand piano, what, were, what are the similarities and differences in your experience from the touch, the tone, the color, the action, the response? What is it like to play on these different pianos? Um, well, they're all very, very different. Um, and, and I think probably the, the best place to start is an upright for us before you get to the grand, um, because there's, or maybe even a keyboard. Um, so when you, you start with an electric keyboard, the sound's not acoustic, right? It's, it's electronic. You play the key and the sound comes out. So there's, it has nothing to do with, you know, how, how hard, um, you, you press the key, it's mainly just a matter of acceleration to a certain extent. Um, but because of that, you know, it doesn't quite register uh, the varying degrees of touch. Um, you know, it's just like when Apple uh, markets their, their pencil and they say, you know, there's a certain degree of um, how much force you can put in and how it registers on an iPad. Same thing. Um, so you can't get really you really can't get too far on an electric piano. Then you get to an acoustic um, piano, an upright piano. Um, the mechanism is, is different because the hammers strike forward onto the string rather yes. than striking up. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to deal with gravity in that sense. Um, and there is a little bit more uh, feeling towards uh, the, the, the tactile feeling of, of pressing the key down. It registers more, more differences in the force that you play. 
Um, but the sound is limited because the soundboard, um, which produces the sound, so it's this giant piece of wood um, on the back of the piano where all the strings are, are attached to that, that vibrates to create the sound of the piano, um, it's much smaller than, than a, a grand, um, a baby grand or, or a concert grand. Um, and as a result, uh, the, the sound that you can get is, is very different. So when, when you pedal on a larger piano, for example, um, the bigger the soundboard is and, and the bigger the piano, the more opportunities there are for, for different reverberations of, of, of tone, right? So we get a, a broader spectrum. It's sort of like, you know, getting a 12 pack of, of crayons as a kid versus getting a, you know, 120, you know, art pencil uh, uh, collection, right? Um, and, and then you can go even further by, by, by mixing paint and creating all the various colors you see. Um, or that you could, that you want to see. Um, and, and that's sort of the difference as you go through to the different pianos. So now a baby grand um, has the same mechanism as a, as a, as a, like a regular grand, but it's just a much smaller version. Um, so again, you're, you're kind of limited to the sound and the depth of the sound that it can produce because the soundboard is so small, right? You just, you just don't get that, um, feeling of, of the sound sort of like enveloping or, or you know, just completely surrounding you in the room. The bigger the piano, um, the more power it has, the more tone it has, the more reverberation it can produce, the more overtones it can produce. And it just gives you more, more colors, if you will, of a palette that you can work with, right? So as a pianist, you're very limited the smaller the piano you go because the piano itself is very limited in, in the sounds that it can produce. Um, you know, the, 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 the range of soft to loud on upright might be like this on a baby grand. It might be like this on a concert grand. It's larger than the screen will probably show. Um, and that's only part of the, the equation. Um, the other part is, is the acoustics of where you're performing in. Right. So a, a upright piano might not sound too bad in a small space, but you get to a large hall, like in, in Warsaw where I performed and, you know, people pass the third row are not going to be able to hear you. Um, and the concert grand has been sort of the established size for, for large halls. Um, and it's, you know, it's good to a certain extent. It's not going to work in like a, a Super Bowl stadium because it's, it wasn't built for that purpose. But for a concert hall of, I don't know, anywhere between one to 4,000-ish people, um, it's able to project very well without the need of any sort of artificial electronic um, amplification. Yeah, and the concert grand piano, for those of you who don't know, is you know it's it's essentially the gold standard for concert hall performance. And recently, a few years ago, Bossendorfer released the Bossendorfer Imperial, two two point nine meters long. That's larger than even the Steinway Model D. It's like wow. <laughs> it's probably I think like nine feet five or something, but yeah, the sound. Yeah, there's there's another uh, manufacturer I think that's created like an 11 foot piano. Um, after a certain point, like it's just uh, it's kind of silly. It doesn't really add too too much at that point between nine and eleven. Um, what happens also is that they end up adding extra strings, extra bass. I actually played in the competition once where the Bosendorfer Imperial was the piano, and it was confusing for all the contestants because there was an extra octave at the bottom of the piano. Um, wow. That being said, the white keys were colored black, but you still know that those keys are there. 
and you know our general piano we have like eight eight and a half octaves ish right uh adding that extra octave at the bottom just completely throws you off um so i remember there's somebody who played la campanella and uh you probably know the piece to listen if you don't you should look it up it's uh by list it's uh, a study of sorts on on bells and the challenge of it is is jumping um between keys on the piano and some of the jumps are two octaves apart played very very quickly very fast Uh, so you can imagine when you're put on this piano where everything is suddenly seemingly shifted up one octave because uh, you have that extra one at the base uh, you don't even know where middle c is sometimes when you sit down at the piano and try to play that piece it's just i felt really bad for them they did a very good job but I felt very bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness you, you see it, it, for for things like that that's i think it's more suitable for like uh for just a regular performance like an exploratory performance or something like that because I mean, with, with an extra octave like that for competitions, it's like you said, it's it's gonna throw people off. It will throw the, the the judges off too. It's like, wait a minute, I don't remember this being in the piece. And it's like, how do you judge even? How do you even judge well if you if that piano is not the, the usual piano that you're that you're used to hearing? And on top of that, it's not the piano that most people even have access to in the first place. So, I mean. I, I do see some applications of it, though. I mean, like, like I said, in an exploratory performance, if you're trying to explore, trying to really expand the range of a certain piece, but really this is more for just improvisational purposes at, at that point. And, but I, I, at least for me, I can kind of see where if you wanted to really experiment with, with the music, if you wanted to experiment and try to add your own embellishments to it, but you have to be very careful doing so, it's, it, you can probably use that. Like, probably the, the, the Dante Sonata, List Dante Sonata or a play in like Chidi Dante Fantasia Quasi Sonata, that piece might probably be suitable for that extra octave because I remember hearing Volados' performance of that. And Volados, for those of you, Arkady Volados, amazing pianist with amazing technical ability. And he's also well known for adding his own transcriptions to, to tr- current transcriptions of different pieces. When he transcribed and performed the Dante Sonata, he he always regularly well, not always he regularly added an extra octave down to the bass so if it was one octave higher we'd lower it down to an octave lower just to add even more color and more of a 3d spacing towards uh, the piece so i think probably the imperial for him probably maybe would be a good application for him because he could really stretch that out to a different thing but again for a competition i i don't like you said it, it's not necessarily suitable for a competition where you're all about well, trying to imitate <laughs> what happened back then so it, it was it, the competition was sponsored by Rosenberger and uh, you know they're going to bring out the big guns when, when, when they're sponsoring the competition and it's more of a marketing thing more than anything um, I don't think many people get use out of the extra octave other than for Rosenberger to say we got the biggest piano and it has an extra octave great yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well I mean if it's a marketing thing then I mean you can't, can't really say, say much else about it so but I mean, it's it's interesting though. It's it's always, I think that innovation in piano technology and what you can what the how the piano is constructed, it's important. But don't put too much in there just for the sake of innovating on top of that, right? It's like just progress for the sake of progress. No, no, no. Like at least in my opinion, be a bit more careful with that. You know, be a bit more careful with how you treat the piano and stuff like that. Because number one, classical music, as as you know, is 
rooted in tradition and it's rooted in a lot of things that have been constructed in the past and trying to reinvent and re-understand and understand what happened in the past. So because of that, going too far into the other extreme where you're just progressing and forgetting everything in the classical music tradition, that's where I, I find a lot of issues coming out of. So innovating is great, but don't go too, too far. If there's one thing that I would like, like piano manufacturers to innovate, it's that make the strings more durable because especially if you're playing list or Horowitz's transcriptions, you get a lot of broken strings and stuff like that. I mean, I've, I've heard stories where not even heard stories. Um, Horowitz himself, when he was playing Rachmaninoff's piano Santa number two, this was later on in his life. He broke a string down at the base in Carnegie Hall. It was on the Steinway Model D at the time. And it was in the recording. It was in the live recording. They had to, to switch out the piano as, and as you know, you know as for, post, for most people who are not familiar with this, with the classical music world, they typically hold backup pianos in case one of the strings breaks and stuff like that, or the action is a bit, bit off or whatnot. And yeah, it, it's sometimes I think that the strings could probably be a bit more improved by making more, more, more durable, more less susceptible to breaking and snapping. I guess that's probably one of the innovations that they could probably do, but I tend to ramble a lot. So I apologize. No, that's fine. That. I, I, I'll just mention a quick comment on that. Cause I, I used to actually, so I used to own a present door for, um, before, uh, I eventually sold it because there's a manufacturing defect, um, or engineering defect, let's say in, in how they're built, um, which causes broken strings. Um, and this was seen in, in, I think in the Steinways as well, and back in the seventies, which is probably why Horowitz's piano was facing some string breakage. And it actually has nothing to do with the strings. Um, and it has to do more with uh, the, the material that the strings rest on. So um, inside the piano, the strings are held by a pin. Right. Um, and then on the other side, there's a, there's, there's like a, a, a hook that the string is, right. is bound to. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of tension there. And all the tension is, is put up against this metal piece. Right. Um, so the strings are pushing up here. Yeah. Underneath the metal piece, there's, there's some material in there. Um, and due to the design flaws, sometimes the material that's used is too soft. And because of the, the pressure from the string, it creates grooves in the material. And because of those grooves, because uh, the strings has some motion in there, there's some movement, it allows for the strings to break more easily. Uh, so when I had a Bussendorfer, uh, I think I broke like 10 strings in one year and it was really bad because it wow. cost a lot of money to replace each time, <laughs> cost somebody in. Um, and eventually I did sell a Bussendorfer and I, I represent Steinway now and they don't have any of those issues, uh, which is great. Um, but that's probably why. So. Oh, innovation wow. you should tell them to, to look at how those strings are being placed uh, the material of the strings themselves are mostly fine wow that's that's really good to know i mean wow <laughs> 10 strings in one year yeah that that, that is a question about manufacturing uh, defects at that point but um moving on to just in general what are the largest misconceptions that people have about classical piano in your experience well, the easiest one is that it's that it's boring or that it's not interesting, right? And a lot of that has to do with how classical music is being portrayed in, in the media. Um, one uh, YouTube channel I've watched from time to time is called Two Set Violin. Yes, uh, they have some you know comedic uh, entries on classical music and some sort of 
brought it up to the forefront, although sometimes they perhaps take it a little too far and it's a little childish, but <laughs> their stuff is pretty good. Um, one of the interesting videos I saw was uh, they, they, had, they had taken out uh, clips from, I think it was America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. Um, and every time somebody said they're going to play classical music, then uh, the producers immediately shot to somebody yawning. Yeah, it, right? it shot to Simon Cowell yawning, actually. Yeah, or somebody yeah. in the audience yeah. yawning. And like, it's fake. Like, they just take it from some, you know, other point in the program and just insert it in there um, to, but this idea is, is, is always perpetualized, right? That classical is boring or that it's not interesting or that it's only for, you know, it's only for old people. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the first problem, I think, because it, it already establishes this false or incorrect baseline of, of people's perception. Um, but a lot of that also has to do with the fact that it's, it's just not as easily consumable. Um, as popular music, right? And I don't have anything against popular music. I'm not like some sort of elitist classical musician that only listens to Bach or whatever. Like that's that's not my, my view at all. But I think in order to appreciate classical music, you do need to have a bit of education into it. And you have to understand why it's interesting or you have to be able to understand and appreciate what the artist is doing. Otherwise, it, it's it's meaningless, right? Because it'll just come come across as a bunch of sounds. And, you know, we often say that there are pieces that are universally, um, you know, they speak to people universally and, um, you know, they tug on your heartstrings or whatever. And, and that's true to a certain extent, but, you know, not obviously not every single piece of music is just going to be like, you know, the Mona Lisa of artwork, right? There's, there's a lot of other things out there. And, and to appreciate that, as I said, you, you got to have some, a, a bit of background and a bit of um, knowledge and education in terms of you know, what to look for and, and what to appreciate. Um, so that's part of it. Second, I think, you know, the, the, the way classical music is performed sometimes and how programs are put together are just not very, not very um, audience friendly, right? You know, sometimes somebody will put together a program of, I don't know, like all Beethoven sonatas. And it's like, okay, great. Good for you. That's amazing that you can do it. But you know, even I don't want to sit down and listen to all 32 Beethoven sonatas at once, right? It's like, it's too much. Um, or somebody will come in and schedule, you know, like 10 nocturnes. Again, not the most interesting way to program something. And, and that doesn't even have anything to do with the music. It's just like how you, how you program it, right? It'd be like having, going to a restaurant and having 10 salads in a row. Like nobody wants that. Um, so you just got to think, I think for for people who, who plan around, um, you know, having classical music productions, uh, performances, part of bringing it into the modern era is, is to, to realize that we, we got to somehow um, bring not just some variety to, to the concerts, but also try to help educate the audience um, to understand, you know, what they're listening to. So it's not just this idea in the abstract that you're listening to classical music and all they hear is just a bunch of sounds without any, any way to, to tie themselves to what they're listening to. Yeah, certainly. First of all, I'm really glad you, you mentioned 2Z Violin. I also watch 2Z Violin quite a lot and it's, uh, great YouTubers. I, I, I highly, recommend, highly recommend our audience to, to check them out. Second of all, you mentioned about uh, understanding and having a bit of a background and understanding classical music. Yeah, I, I, I see there's, a, there's actually a problem with that here in Canada now, at least from my opinion where I have a couple of colleagues who are in the teachers who are in teachers college and 
one of the issues that they mentioned was that the government spending, and I won't mention which provinces, although you can do a quick Google, Google search for those of you in the audience. One of the issues is that Google, uh, not Google, government spending on music education and arts education has, has gone down to the extent where there, schools that can afford to have music teachers of any kind are actually laying them off and now teaching music literally on carts. And the teachers who teach them are homeroom teachers in, in school, many of whom don't have any musical background whatsoever. So in Canada, in the school system, there's already an issue where kids don't even know how to read sheet music, how to read what A, B, C, D, E, F, G is. Now with this, how in the world do you expect them to understand what, how, what music is and how to discern and criticize and appreciate music at a decent enough level when you don't even know what the notes are. It's like speaking English without even knowing what the letters of the alphabet are or even knowing how to make a sentence. So that's a problem that I think Canada has not a unique program, uh, problem, but a unique or a distinctive rather, a distinctive problem that most countries around the world don't have. You go to Russia, for example, Russia has an amazing music curriculum for the equivalent of grades one kindergarten to grade 12 for their high school age students. Those, the students there, the average Russian student knows a lot more about music than the average Canadian student. And that's actually something because again, if you, even if you were to understand pop music or different styles or jazz or whatever, how do you, how are you supposed to have a good opinion of it? If you don't even know what the mechanics are behind it and what's the musicality behind that. Right. So this is a problem that I think, Canada, Canadian provinces and territories need to really fix in the coming years because you can't deprive kids of a musical education and you can't just rely completely on, 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 on the extracurricular system where you have independent piano teachers who are, who are teaching it. Not, 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 to, not, not that I have anything against them. I think it's very important that we should have independent piano teachers, but you can't just say that, okay, the curriculum doesn't have to worry about music at all or arts at all for that matter, because it is just as important as your sciences and your maths and your languages. And that's my honest opinion. Yeah. You know, I think it's a, it's a very challenging question. And um, I think there's, there's many aspects to it. Like that we don't have enough funding is certainly one thing, but I think a lot of the problem um, is, is not only that, like it's, it's also on the private teachers. Um, and and also the 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 outset i think that that many parents are, are led to believe um for for their students in, in learning music uh i used to teach a bit myself um and i came across uh several different you know people parents um and and the the, the view of, of what they wanted their children to have in a musical education always surprised me because it was, it was about getting the next grade, the certificate. Um, and to the extent where they'd just be like, okay, why don't we just skip, you know, grade three, four, five, so we can go to grade six or then we get grade eight. Uh, and then, you know, once they get their ARCT, um, then they're done. Um, but that misses the point for me. Um, it completely misses the point um, of, of what a musical education is supposed to be. It has nothing to do, like there's certificates are there to, to help you. Uh, they're, they're like a goalpost to just let you know like where you've, where you've gone to. But that's, that's not the end of the road, right? Like having an ARCT, quite frankly, doesn't 
mean much. Um, you know, you go out of Canada, you wave your ARCT around and people be like, what's, what's that? Um, yeah, and no exactly. offense to the, the conservatory. Like, I think what they, what they do is important, but at the same time, I think, you know, people got to understand that like musical education is, is about learning, um, learning, really learning the music. Um, and as part of that is learning those soft skills, right? Like you know, exactly. the practice, the discipline, the time management, um, the, the interpretation um, of scores, um, being, having attention to detail and, and some broader questions in terms of just, you know, thinking about, you know, what, what did the composer try to achieve here? Or, you know, there's history lessons to be learned in terms of the background of the pieces or even looking into the background of the composer themselves. And, you know, students would come to me or the parents would come to me saying they weren't satisfied with their previous teacher, whatever. And often it's because the, or their students, they said their students weren't, their kids weren't interested in learning music, but they weren't practicing um, or they lost interest. Mm -hmm. and, and it's often because the, the drive um, for, for many uh, private teachers, uh, and you know, I, I, I take into account that obviously it's, it's their living and they need to find some way to retain students, but the drive is often, well, let's just get the bare minimum for you to get to the next level, right? Or, or to get an 80 on your exam, but everything else in the score is missed, right? I, I always find it interesting, like I've adjudicated for competitions and you have a kid who comes up and plays, you know, relatively well, decently, and then you ask them, okay, what's the, uh, what's the tempo marking for this piece? I don't know. Uh, what's this piece called? I don't know. Or it's a waltz, what's a waltz? I don't know, right? Or, you know, there's an Italian term in there. What does it mean? I don't know. And like, you've kind of missed the point, right? Like the, the exercise of learning music is not for you to sit down 30 minutes, an hour a day to move your fingers around so you can reproduce that sound on stage. I can put it into a computer and have it do the same thing. What, I, what we want to hear is to hear your interpretation, how you thought about the piece. Um, and I think that's, that's an important part of the educational aspect. And I think that, that viewpoint really needs to be changed from the bottom up. Not just like, that's not something that the government's going to be able to do no matter how much money they inject into the system. I think that's, that's a lot on, on private teachers and, and all these music schools, like there's so many of them everywhere. Right. And um, you know, I get it. They're a business, but you know, as part of that, I think they should try to refocus um, the education uh, and, and get it away from just getting the certificate, getting your ARCT, doing your theory, none of that really matters at the end of the day. What you should go home with yeah. is a better understanding and a better musical education. If you got the certificate, great. If you didn't, whatever. I have a grade six piano from RCM and that's it. Okay. And <laughs> I have a grade eight violin. <laughs> uh, technically I'm better at violin than I am at piano. It doesn't like, it's not meant to say anything bad about the RCM system. I think what, what they do and having, again, like having those goalposts there is important, but that's not, that's not the, that's not the end of it. Like that's, that's not the end goal, right? That's mm -hmm. not the finished product. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think if we can, not we particularly, but I think, you know, if people listen or any music teachers listening uh, and, and people who, who, who do aspire to become music teachers and inspire the next generation, you know, try to get them to think a little bit more um, about the piece and, and, and that makes it more difficult for the teacher as well. Cause I mean, you got to know yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you're teaching. You got to do your research. You, you can't just give them a piece and be like, okay, play the notes. And then next week we'll do it 15% faster and play loud here, play soft there. Like it's a lot more than that. Yes. Um, and 
you know, if you start students out with, with, with thinking that classical music is just that, I'm just going to play some notes, they kind of sound a little boring, I got to play softer here, play louder there, play faster here, play slower there. Like, they're not going to be interested because it's kind of meaningless, right? It's just like somebody telling you to, you know, go dig a hole in, in, in the field, make that one a little smaller, make that one a little uh, bigger, right? Like, it, it doesn't hold any intrinsic meaning to them. And unless you're able to tie those pieces together to the student, give them some understanding of, of, of what they're learning and why they're learning, right? Like, why, why did the composer decide that this piece should be slower? Why has he put this Italian term in there that means, you know, that it's, it's sorrowful or, or, or that it should be playful? Like, what is the composer trying to get at? Like, when, when you, I think, impart those things onto the student, they, they don't feel like they're just being told to do something, but they're more part of the learning process. And that's what exactly. gets them interested, um, I think, in the long run, because as you go from level to level, that knowledge builds and builds and builds and builds. And with the background, with that foundation, then you're able to really think for yourself and, and be able to interpret a piece for yourself and have meaningful discussions with other people who have played that piece and, and, and see why people have different interpretations or see why people have thought about the piece differently um, or appreciate somebody's performance. And that's what makes it interesting at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. You nailed every single point on, on, on the dot. I, I, I've been telling this to my friends and colleagues as well. And, and a lot of them have the same misconceptions that classical music being so boring and the, the, and, and, you know, nothing interesting about it. I, I tell them that, that the issue is that, you know, the way how we're approaching music education in, in Canada is some of it is good, but a lot of it can be certainly better, certainly better. And one of my friends currently in law school, same year as me, she was a violinist uh, in Europe before she came to, to, to Canada. And she told me that the first thing she realized that in Canada, and again, no, no disrespect and no, no offense to, and not meant, this is not meant to be in any way offensive to, to the RCM. As, as Leonard said, it's, a, it's, it's done a lot of great work for music education in Canada. But what she realized that in Canada, it's so structured. Like, it's, like you said, it's just like, Getting to grade five, getting to grade six, getting to grade seven, eight, nine, ten, ARCT, LRCM. But it's just like when I was in, when she said when I was in Europe, there was none of that. It was just more like, do you understand the soul of the piece? Are you, first of all, are you able to get the technique down? Second of all, are you able to get, to get the musicality of the piece down? Do you have the soul of the piece down? Okay. Third of all, do you understand what the composer is? Fourth of all, do you understand what's the history behind it? Okay. Okay, then you move on to, to pieces and then more repertoire and then you, you grow your technique and your musicality on top of that. She was at a level where, you know, and this is gonna, not going to be a surprise to, to, to the, the, the two of us, but for, she was at a level where she was able to interpret counterpoint at around age 12 or age 13, whereas most kids don't even necessarily know how to phrase properly yet in, 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 a, in a piano performance or a violin performance, but she was able to interpret counterpoint so effectively better than some ARCTs even and better than some ARCMs. And it's, it's, she said that I, again, I, I learned in a system in Europe where there was basically, it was very flexible. There was no, there was not this much structure. It wasn't so bureaucratized at this point. And I find that that's an issue that we face here in, in Canada. And like you said, with a lot of students saying that there is that, Oh, I have to do this. I have to do that X number of minutes to get this certificate, get this number of marks. The soft skills, like you said, are so important. 
And a lot of parents want their kids, you know, as you know, maybe the Asian stereotype is go to med school, go to law school and stuff like that. Well, I can speak from the law school experience and you can also speak from the, from, from the law school experience. Hard skills are not the only skills that are important for a legal career. Soft skills are also important for a legal career. And that's where the arts and music come in. That's where they can offer you those soft skills in advance, the discipline, the practice, the, the mentality, the intellectuality behind not just a certain piece of music, but behind a certain case as well. And this is actually a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask next in regards to your transition from classical piano to law. How was the transition like? And how did you use your classical piano training? How did you use your how, how did you use the soft skills that you learned from your classical piano career into your time in law school and now eventually as a lawyer? Yeah, so, I mean, first year law school for everybody is always going to be a bit jarring. <laughs> uh, it's a huge change from everything. But, um, you know, as I, as I went through law school and um, found my interest in, in tax, uh, and I'll specifically tie this to tax because I think there's, there's, a, there's a good parallel to be made. Um, why I found tax interesting and, and how I, I brought my music skills into it was, was to, to look at it sort of like how I interpret music. So, you know, we got this giant piece of legislation, the Income Tax Act. Um, it's comprised of sections, words, um, you know, subparagraphs, sentences, whatever. That's not very different from looking at a score. All right. So, you know, piano concerto, 50 pages. Okay, it's not 2,000 pages like the Income Tax Act, but, you know, similar, you get the idea. Um, we have notes on the score of a piano work. We got words on the page, legislation. We put those notes together, we get phrases. We put words together in the legislation, we get sentences. We put those phrases together, we get sections. Same thing in our legislation. We put those phrases together, we get sections. We look at larger sections of the of, of um, a musical work, it's look, looking like parts of, of the act, and then you put that all together. And and what makes it interesting is is not so much just you know playing the notes, just like it would be very boring, I'm sure, if somebody tried to read the Income Tax Act like a, a book, um, and anybody can read it. It's not like the there's the words are inherently challenging. It's like simple language for the most part, some defined terms. Um, but what makes it interesting is the interpretation. Right, so we in, we interpret by finding those those nuances and deviances in in the musical score and the notes and how they interplay with each other. We we find different interpretations of that work, and same thing. We go to the legislation. We 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 look at how the words are used and we interpret it. Right, and we come out to different legal results, um, results that are fought in court, you know, at, at all levels. Um, so I think for me, like that's that's one of the biggest soft skills that I brought from music into law is, is that idea of interpretation, the, the attention to detail um, in musical scores, you can bring it back to looking at legislation or case law, right? Sometimes just having a comma in a sentence makes all the difference. Same thing in a musical score. I, I often find it's, it's surprising when people go through and perform a piece and it sounds right it sounds okay but something's missing like what what is it that's missing that takes it from the student to the professional level well it's it's those details right you see there's sometimes there's phrasing over maybe just two notes that somebody hasn't hasn't um paid attention to but that particular phrasing is actually a motive for the entire piece 
right? And suddenly they've actually missed the <laughs> missed the the entire interpretation. And the same thing, you look at a legislation like you miss the miss the understanding of how the words are used. You can completely misunderstand how how it's supposed to be applied. Exactly, exactly. It's those little details that can make or break your case. And at the same time, it's also important for one to know where their case is, right? And I think you, I'm very sure you went through this also when you were in law school as well. We're often taught about the theory and theme of a case when you're litigating or even when you're just formulating a case in the first place. If you don't have a good foundation, if you don't have your theory and theme of the case, how do you expect to win the case? It's a similar way how you're approaching a piece of music. You don't have, first of all, if you don't have the key signatures or time signatures down, how are you supposed to understand that? How are you supposed to play the piece accurately? Okay, afterwards, if you don't have that, that history down, you don't have that timing down, you don't, you don't have that understanding of what the piece is, if you don't even know what the piece is about, how do you expect to interpret it in the correct way when you're performing it for someone? Or even when you're practicing it, even for, before you're performing. So it's these details that are just so important. And these are details that we take for granted, both in the music world and in the, the legal world as well. A lot of people have this misconception in the law as, oh, I have a clear tight case. There's no way I'm going to lose this case. There's no way that the other side is going to be able to beat me. But then when, that, but that's why you need a lawyer there because then, wait, hold on. You got A, B, C, D, E. You got here these five points or more perhaps that could make or that could make or break your case because the court's going to look at this as saying, okay, well, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. Or you did that you did this, that's not good, right? So it's these details that people take for granted or, or completely ignore. But the small things can make big, big results that can change the course of a person's life and change the course of history. So, and that's one of the things that, at least for me, I found that was so important from a musical training into a legal career because it's, the, it's that mindfulness for details that sets person apart from one who doesn't have necessarily a musical training and who goes to law school. And I think it's so important. And I, I think you've shown it a lot in, in your own career as well after you went on to, uh, to practicing law in, in the tax world. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, like, you just gotta, you gotta be very, very attentive to, to everything. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the theory of the case and, and that's true. Um, you know, often, you know, if you're writing submissions, at least in my line of work, I, I deal with the Canada Revenue Agency and um, a big part of what we do is, is writing submissions on, on why or why not the taxpayer should be assessed a certain way based on the facts that they have and as applied to the case law and the legislation. And, you know, you got to understand like what you're trying to put forth and, and be convincing in, in how you portray um, your ideas, right? And that's no different when you get on stage. If you you might have unique interpretation and if it's convincing, people will love it. But if you get on stage and you just, I don't know, do something strange that doesn't really cohesively work in any way, then people will come out of the recital thinking like, what, what's going on? Like that interpretation makes no sense or that was a bad performance maybe, right? So all of these things are, they're, they're important and they're, they're things that are not immediately obvious, but um, they do make a, a, a a big impact, um, practically speaking, when, you know, especially once you start to start to practice, um, you know, so I think it's, it's very important, um, you know, beyond just the studying and all that, like law school teaches you how to think, it doesn't teach you how to practice. And having these extra soft skills on the side will, will, I think, definitely help you out in the long run.
Yes, that, that's a great way to summarize the law school experience and the difference between that and the legal career as well. As we start to conclude this episode, some of our audience members are musicians that are currently in law school or about to go to law school. And they're often told that their musical training is useless in law school and can't be used in their careers as lawyers. The reason why I bring this up is because I myself was told this by a lot of people before I was going to go to law school. They told me that, no, piano is not useful in any way. And I, I keep telling them, no, that's wrong. You're wrong. It, it is useful. And clearly, your classical piano career, Leonard, your classical piano career has proven all of them wrong. Classical music is, is extremely helpful and even advantageous in a legal career and legal thinking. If anything, it's almost like a superpower in some ways, although that's really exaggerating the point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's a superpower, but I, I can speak to the point um, of it being useful. I, I know three other colleagues, um, all law students, all previously studied music, um, all successful lawyers now. Um, that's just in my age category. I, I know several others as well um, who have a musical background um, and they found great success in law. Um, I don't think, you know, is it is it useless objectively speaking in the sense that playing piano is not going to help you win a case sure um but you know so is everything else you know like you have a history degree is that going to help you win a case no or political science or whatever like none of it really matters and that's why um law school is so great because you, you you get brought into this pool of people coming from all different backgrounds and and you know the school obviously thinks that these people can can be successful and and many of them do right most if, if not all um and they do come from different backgrounds and, and that's what makes um most lawyers interesting because they're able to pull um these skills that they've they've had in their prior lives or in their prior studies and, and bring them to the practice of law right you know as musicians we're able to bring these soft skills um based on our performances and i'm sure the same could be said for for people coming from from other areas so I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't discredit somebody from going to law school just because they studied music. I mean, that's exactly, exactly. Me. Exactly. And for those of you in the audience who don't know this, but Supreme Court of Canada Justice Rosalia Bella was a classical pianist and studied music before she went to law school. Look where she is now. So, yeah, it, it, it just shows that a lot of people they are, are either ignorant to it or they just they, they they have this kind of like maybe just kind of like a bias towards it for, for some for some odd reason or not but sometimes they honestly don't see this difference and sometimes you have to tell them about that but for the students or the people who want to go to law school and who are music, musically trained and they're being told things like this what is your advice to them about surviving law school and about thriving through their legal careers using their musical training well, you know, I, we talked about these soft skills and I think they should, they should try to draw on that, right? Um, I mean, to be perfectly frank, like law school is not for everybody. Um, and that's fine, right? Like it's, it's, it's not like you have to go in and you have to go through with it. There's people that go to law school and, and find out that's not what they want to do and they leave to go and do better things. There's just people who practice law and then get burned out and leave to do better things. And that's totally fine. But I think, you know, the most important thing is that you do what you want to do and you, you, you go for it and you try, right? What's the worst that could happen? The worst is you get into school, you try it and you don't like it. That's great. Um, but to be told or to have this conception that you're not good enough for it, 
Um, and, and then to, to have a lifelong sort of regret for not trying, I, th I think that's probably the worst outcome out of everything, right? Um, so go for it, you know, take the skills that you have, even the skills that you, you might not realize that you actually have um, and, and, and bring those to, to law school um, and beyond, right? You know, if, for music, like we said earlier, there's, you know, think about, you know, what, what, did you what did you do in music that made you successful, right? Was it because you were more attentive to the score than other people? Is there some way of, you know, thinking in terms of your interpretation that, that made you successful? Those are probably things that you can bring to, to your law school studies, right? Like when you read case law, it's not, it's, it's not just about always about the, you know, the, the, the legal tests that came out of it, right? Because the tests are, are based on the facts. And maybe you realize that there's, there's something in this case in the facts that differentiates it from another one, which maybe is why, you know, that legal test didn't, didn't play out properly. And we see that all the time, right? You know, when somebody wins at uh, one level of court and they go to the court of appeal and gets overturned, why? because you know the test wasn't applied correctly and you know if you're able to bring those skills in and realize those differences um you know before somebody else that that makes you that makes you all the more successful right and better candidate for for being a lawyer going forward certainly great words to live by and i'm very sure the future of canadian pianism will continue to grow um you really set the tone for a lot of future canadians to 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 really pursue both a music career and a legal career as well. So I think you certainly are an inspiration to so many different people. And Leonard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been truly an educational ride. It's been an educational experience. And I, I, I think that the audience will certainly have learned a lot and to learn a bit more, just a little bit more about what the world that you and I are in, the classical music world, although you are much, much more involved than I ever will be <laughs> at any point in my life. But just a little bit more. People will now know a little bit more about the classical music world. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Well, thank you so much. And again, flattered by all the compliments you're, you're, you're putting on me. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's been, been great to have this, uh, this chat. And you know, I'm glad we could connect and, and speak on these things. Thank you once again. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to this episode of The Law School Show. Tune in next time to The Law School Show on another episode as we will continue to give you more interesting guests and content like this into the future. Until next time. Signing off for now, this is Amos Vang. Stay safe, stay healthy. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.